0: Heavenly Father, Lord, it's difficult to uh, talk about this particular passage and not be reminded that there are men and women, mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters, family and friends who have lost loved ones, and Lord, the pain of that loss is still very raw and very real. And Lord, we pray that as we go over this particular passage, that we would once again be reminded that, Lord, you've provided a cure for a troubled heart. And that's the knowledge, Lord, that this world isn't everything and that there is another world. And Heavenly Father, I pray as you prepare a place for us, that you would prepare our hearts for that place. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, it says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. Jesus opens this section by saying, let not your heart be troubled, but they are troubled. Few things are more frustrating than when the scripture tells us something And immediately our hearts rebel and our hearts cry out. Jesus has announced that he's about to die. One of their closest companions is a traitor. Jesus has prophesied that Peter will deny him three times. And the words make us numb. Betrayal, division, desertion, duplicity, separation, these are words that trouble our hearts and we look for an explanation. We look for reasons. We look for answers. I heard the story of a man who brought his very young son to a fairly large church and they had a massive foyer and posted on the walls were portraits of men and women who had died in service and when the father brought him in and he sees all of these portraits, he the, the young man looked at the plaque for those who died in service and he said, which service? The 9 o'clock or the 11 o'clock? Right when we least expect it, we come to church not to die exactly. Peter's heart, you can imagine, was pounding furiously and he feels out of control have you ever felt that way that life was caving in that you weren't in control we sometimes feel exactly that way and we know why because our hearts our human hearts our fragile hearts. They're easily broken, but they're not just simply fragile hearts. Sometimes we certainly act as if we're fallen hearts, wicked, unknowable, easily disturbed, easily troubled. And so part of the plan that is happening, Jesus will calm their troubled hearts. And the whole chapter, chapter 14, is devoted not so much to asking the question, what happens when we die? But asking and answering the question, how do I deal with my fragile heart, with my broken heart, with my troubled heart? And in verses 1 through 3, he talks about heaven. But Jesus is going to offer several assurances for the troubled heart. Not simply the fact of heaven, but that the disciples are going to heaven. And then he offers a second assurance. The disciples know God the Father and they know him right now in verses 7 through 11. And the third thing is the disciples have a newfound privilege in prayer in verses 12 through 15. And the disciples have the Holy Spirit in verses 16 through 18. And the disciples can enjoy the Father's love now in verses 19 through 24. And the disciples are in possession of the Father's gift of peace in verses 25 through 31. These are all going to be... Things that are going to be necessary as they walk through this difficult time. The Bible says that our hearts were made for God, to know God, and the human heart requires a heavenly home, an eternal destination. God has placed eternity in our hearts. According to Jesus, heaven is a real place. But when some people ask and answer the question, what happens when you die? Some people suggest personal extinction. Some suggest transformation into a higher self. Some suggest reincarnation. Some suggest a departure into some shadowy world on the other side of existence. But Jesus wants to ask and answer the question in a way that we will be able to embrace and understand it. And he gives the first commandment, believe in me. Look at verse 1 again. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. From the very start, Jesus reminds his disciples that personal faith in a personal God brings personal strength and when do you think that you need strength and when do you think that you need comfort and when do you think that you need hope it's when your heart is broken when the sorrow is overwhelming by the way there's a little grammatical debate among scholars over this verse is the phrase let not your heart be troubled you believe the expression here believe in God and also believe in me is this indicative or imperative. The second person plural of the present tense of the indicative and imperative are exactly the same in the original language. It's from the root word pistis or pisteo, which means to believe. And the word means more than just believe. It means to trust, to rely, to place confidence in. Our hope for explanation lies in the context. Jesus is in effect saying, you believe in God, believe also in me. Or we might even translate this, you have trust or faith in God. Let your trust and faith also find a resting place in me. I've got to tell you something, those words are shocking to an observant Jew. Jesus, what are you saying? You believe in God. You believe in a loving God. You believe in a transcendent God. You believe in a good God. You believe in a forgiving God. You believe in a reconciling God. You believe in a God who is eternal, immortal. You believe in a God. Believe in me in the same way, is what he's saying. Jesus is inviting his disciples to trust him. And remember, trust goes a little bit further than belief. Trust is warm and personal. And so the care for a troubled heart begins with belief in the unconditional goodness of God, that in God you have a deep anchor of goodness tied with a heavy rope of love. And no matter how Far, the anchor plunges into the sea of sorrow. The ship will remain steady. Belief in the goodness of God, belief in the love of God, belief in the generosity of God, all point to the Lord Jesus Christ. No wonder John would later write, he who has the Son has the Father, and he who does not have the Son does not have the Father. If God is willing to give us Jesus, what will He withhold from us? As a matter of fact, Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, where he says, He who did, that is the Father, he who did not spare his own Son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall He not with him also freely give us all things? The disciples are invited. To trust Jesus. Jesus will place them in the good ship's salvation. And that good ship will take them through the storm safely to a safe harbor. And every test that blows, every trial, every threat will fill our sails with faith or it will put pressure on the mast. It will put pressure on the very integrity of the ship. The disciples are called upon to trust him. And remember, whatever we render to God the Father, we render to God the Son. Both can be equally trusted. By the way, it makes no sense to say, let not your heart be troubled. There are people who quote this verse, but they don't quote all of the verse. They say, let not your heart be troubled. But how can you make that statement unless you're also willing to say, believe in God. Trust God. Believe in Jesus. Trust Jesus. Believe in the goodness of God. Believe in the goodness of Jesus. But there are those who would rather trust in the goodness of man and trust in the hope that everything will turn out all right or trust in good works or trust in self-sacrifice or trust in rites or trust in creed or trust in ritual. But now, all of a sudden, the barrier is lifted and Jesus invites you to understand the basis of eternal life. And it's Him. It's Him. As a matter of fact, if you turn just a few pages of your Bible to John chapter 17 verse 3 Jesus says and this is eternal life that they may know you speaking of God the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent Jesus defines eternal life in terms of having a relationship with him and we have a new peace we have a shelter in the storm Yesterday, I was out and about with my wife, and we were at Hobby Lobby right next to Mardell's, and and through the speakers, they were they were piping the song, "It is well with my soul. It is well with my soul." You know the song when sorrows like sea billows roll." Many people don't realize that that song was written in the context of a man whose wife and family went out to sea. He had three beautiful daughters, and they all drowned. His wife survived. She, when she finally came to a place of safety, she said, All the girls are lost. Only I remain. And he wrote that song. It is well with my soul. When you're in the midst of sorrow, when you're in the midst of pain, when you're in the midst of trial, you need peace. Because trials will come. Sorrows will roll. The disciples are about to face three days of intense, dark depression. Every prop Every anchor, every familiar landmark, every guiding star is about to be swept from under their feet. Jesus will die. His cold body will bear the marks of torture. His lips will remain silent. His eyes will be closed. His presence gone. His personality removed. And somewhere just beyond reach, somewhere just on the other side of life, They'll hear these words whispering in their ears. Trust me. Believe in me. Trust me. Believe in me. You know, this particular passage of Scripture is the one that I invariably teach when I bury your mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters This is the go-to verse that people look to in order to provide care and comfort and hope. I heard the story of a pastor who was conducting a funeral for a woman who wasn't a believer by any stretch of the imagination. She didn't believe in God and she didn't believe in Jesus and she didn't believe in the Bible and she didn't believe in hope. And there she was at the gravesite burying her little girl. And the pastor pulled out all of the stops and tried to give her comfort and hope. She tried some way to divide the sorrow and help with the grief and help with the pain. And the more that he spoke, the less that she listened until finally she said, I don't believe you. I don't believe you. I don't believe in God, and I don't believe in Jesus, and I don't believe in the Bible said what do you believe and she said I believe that I'm going to have to bury my daughter and forget that I ever had her can you imagine the sorrow the emptiness the pain how hard is it to trust when your heart is completely broken. William Barclay writes, there comes a time when we have to believe where we cannot prove and to accept where we cannot understand if in the darkest hour we believe that somehow there is a purpose in life and that purpose is love, even the unbearable becomes bearable and even the darkness, there Comes a glimmer of light. And that's part of the point. In the midst of pain. And in sorrow. You have to be able to give people hope. The circumstances may not change. But we can change. And look at verse 2. Jesus is corroboration that not only am I making a promise, but there's a place to go. Look what it says in verse 2. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you I go to prepare a place for you. The word translated mansions comes from a Greek noun, mone, which the verb is what the young adult group is called me no it it means to remain or abide or dwell or the or the dwelling place so jesus is basically indicating that there's not many houses in heaven look what it says in my father's house are many mansions. There are many houses. There's one house. It's a singular house. It's a gigantic house. In other words, this house, this one house is the Father's house, and in that house are many dwelling places. That's what, what, what the word mansion means. Now, this becomes important for each and every one of us because there's no credit crunch in heaven. There's no housing crisis. There's not either a glut or a limited amount. There are many, many dwelling places. Here's the idea that there's enough for everyone. There's plenty of room for you. That's the idea. You know, When Mary was pregnant with Jesus, you'll remember that she and her husband came to an inn. And do you remember how they were greeted? There's no room. But there's plenty of room for you. William Barclay again wrote that heaven is as wide as the heart of God and there's room for all. Jesus is basically saying to his friends, don't be afraid. Men may shut their doors upon you, but in heaven you will never have the door shut. If you read the Bible, you'll discover something. That heaven is called many things. As a matter of fact, it's called a kingdom. In 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 11, it's called an inheritance in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 4, it's called a city in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 16, but my favorite my favorite my favorite description is my father's house. I love that. You realize the expression father occurs some 53 times. In John chapter 13 and 14 and 15 and 16 and 17. And Jesus calls heaven my Father's house. I think for very good reason because it's a home for God's children. You know, some years ago, a London newspaper held a contest to determine the best definition of home. The winning entry was, home is the place where you're treated the best and you complain the most. The poet Robert Frost said that home is the place that when you arrive there, they have to take you back. I like that. Since Jesus describes heaven as my Father's house, I think it makes perfect sense that it's a place of love and it's a place of joy. But there's also another thing, image that's given to us. That our home should in some fashion be a hint of heaven. Tell me what you love the most about your home. It's your home. It's the place of familiarity. It's the place of comfort. You know, when John received his vision of heaven, he struggled to find words in the book of Revelation. John the Apostle would describe heaven as a place of no mores. Do you remember when you were a kid and you'd go camping and you'd have zamors? He goes, zamor? What is that? Oh, it's when you get it, you're going to want zamor. When, When John writes about heaven, he writes of it as a place where there's no more hunger. No more Thirst, Revelation seven sixteen, no more sin, Revelation twenty one twenty seven. No more judgment upon sin, Revelation twenty two, verse three, no more tears, no more crying, no more sun, no more moon, no more night. We're introduced to a place not simply. In terms of what it is, but what it isn't. Paul, the apostle, struggled to find words as he makes a description of a person who made his way up into heaven. And in Corinthians, he talks about whether he was in the body or out of the body. And the reason why that becomes such an important expression in Paul's language is he's saying... Whether I was in my body or whether I was out of the body, I have no idea. But the place was so real. It was so genuine that it was indistinguishable to me. Jesus says in verse 2, if it were not so, I would have told you. Do you understand how important that expression is? Is it possible that heaven is a monstrous lie, a religious fabrication, Now, remember, 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 Jesus has told His disciples to say goodbye to comfort, to say hello to persecution, to expect trial, to expect trouble, to expect tribulation, to expect sorrow, but to be of good cheer because He's overcome the world. He's talked about a cross and how you must carry that cross. Question. Has Jesus been brutally honest I think the answer is yes. A person who has been so honest, does it make sense that he's going to lie at this very point? I don't think so. Jesus is making the statement, I'm not lying about this. There was a a song in the, I think it was the early 70s when I was a kid growing up by Chicago. There was a song that went something like, I pray there ain't no heaven. I I know there ain't no heaven, but I pray there ain't no hell. You Remember? Swear there ain't no heaven, but I pray there ain't no hell. But you'll never know by living, because only my dying will tell. It's only my dying will tell. Yeah, okay, that's how it goes. The problem with the song, it's not telling the truth. There is a heaven. And you don't have to die in order to get there to know that because Jesus says it's true. And look what else he says. I go to prepare a place for you. Now, question. Who do you think is the best source of information about what happens when you die? Doesn't it make sense to you that it's a person who has died and come back to life? Then why would you trust Oprah? When Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you, one of the greatest words used to describe Jesus is this phrase, prodromo. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 20, and, and, and there he talks about, In Hebrews chapter 6 verse 20 it says where the forerunner has entered for us even Jesus having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek the word translated forerunner is the person who would go in preparation this is the prodromos and in the world of ancient peoples it was used to describe a number of things including reconnaissance troops Pro They went ahead of the main contingent of troops to prepare the way to blaze the trail to ensure the safety of the main body of the army. By the way, in the ancient world, there was also a port, the port of Alexandria. And in the port of Alexandria, which is where the Nile River dumps into the Mediterranean, Alexander founded his city. And it was a gigantic harbor filled with sandbars. It was difficult to negotiate it. As a matter of fact, when the great grain ships would come from Rome and Greece to load their boats with this life-giving sustenance, there was a little boat that was sent out to steer them safely into harbor, and that little boat was called Prodromos. It was the mechanism to negotiate something else to a place of safety. And that's what Jesus does. Jesus goes to prepare a place for you. He will walk through the valley of the shadow of death to make it absolutely certain that it's safe for you. Each and every one of you, each and every one of you without exception, barring the return of the Lord Jesus, will one day close your eyes for the last time. And you'll open your eyes into eternity that's why Jesus refers to heaven as a real place and it's not simply a real place it's a prepared place William Ward wrote before you speak listen before you write think before you spend earn before you invest investigate before you criticize wait before you pray, forgive, before you quit, try. before you retire, save, before you die. Give. I would you notice know, describing stop, talking about preparation. Heaven is a place that Jesus is preparing for you, but I'm going to suggest something else. But there's another preparation that is also taking place, and it's the preparation inside of your heart. It's the preparation that God begins to make inside of you for all of eternity. (laughs) The Boy Scout motto is, be prepared. Jesus not only provides the path, He not only prepares the path, but He is the path. And look what it says in verse 3. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to Myself, that where I am, there you may be also. We discover that Heaven is a real place, that Heaven is a prepared place, that Heaven is a personal place, and that Heaven is an exclusive place and note when Jesus says I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am there you may be also the most important thing about heaven isn't that the streets are made of gold or that the gates are made of pearl but you know what I really believe that they are not just metaphorically but in reality that the streets in heaven are are made of gold. You want to know why? Because it's the cheapest and most available material available. That's what we make. What do we make our roads out of? Dirt and oil. That's what's fun about having a little gold necklace around your neck. You're wearing a tiny bit of dirt in heaven. I like that. The most important thing about heaven is that it isn't just simply a place that you go when you die, but it's a person that you meet when you get there. Jesus said, and receive you to my self. We know that heaven is a holy place. And in order for you to go there, you have to be holy. And so guess what? Does Jesus make you holy in heaven? The answer is no. Jesus will make you holy right here on the earth when he goes to the cross, when he dies for your sin. You experience forgiveness and hope and life. This is important. Jesus will prepare a place of forgiveness and redemption and forgiveness and redemption for a reason. It's relationship. It's relationship with Him and to Him. And so Jesus makes the glorious promise to the believer that all separations are temporary and for the believer there will be this glorious reunion. And so Jesus makes a promise, a pledge, I will come again. The return of Jesus and the glorious reunion are meant to provide a permanent cure for the troubled heart. Peace that has as its ultimate terminus friendship and relationship. Do you realize that the Christian is promised constant companionship by the Lord Jesus? When you die as a believer The psalmist says That you awake in his likeness But it also says That you will be his constant companion Throughout eternity So think about it for just a moment If Jesus is seated At the right hand of the Father Guess where you will be Seated at the right hand of the Father If Jesus returns to the planet Earth Guess where you're going to be Earth If Jesus, for reasons that we have absolutely no idea, decides to stop off on Mars, guess where you'll be? If Jesus decides to visit Alpha Centauri, for whatever reason, guess where you'll be? You will be Christ's companion throughout eternity. And by the way, heaven in the most basic possible terms, is exactly that. The place where Jesus abides or remains. And when you love someone, when you really love someone, when you love them with your whole heart and your whole soul and your whole mind, you're only, you're only, only truly alive when you're with that person. Jesus defines eternal life in terms of friendship and relationship. And so that is how it is for the Christian. We want to be with Jesus. Our connection right now may be a little dim, it may be a little dark, it may be a little fragile. Like Paul the Apostle, we may see through a glass dimly, we may catch a shadow, we may we may see from time to time the reflection of our Savior in the Word of God, in the work of God, in the circumstances when we sing and worship, we receive a glimpse of heaven. But there will come a time when we're fully and finally connected with Jesus. So what's the prescription for a troubled heart? Personal faith in a personal God brings personal strength. Jesus is preparing a place for us. But Jesus is also preparing our hearts for that place. By the way, what are the tools that you suppose God uses to prepare us for that place? I'm going to suggest to you that sometimes it's trial. And sometimes it's trouble. And sometimes it's pressure. And that trial and trouble and pressure all take place in part in order to prepare us. In James chapter 1, verse 2, James writes, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the test of your faith produces patience. And so God is preparing you. Many years ago, radio evangelist Charles E. Fuller announced that he was going to be speaking the following Sunday about heaven. And the broadcast was going to be on the radio. And during that week, he received a letter from an old man who was very ill. I'd like to read part of that letter. He writes, and I quote, Next Sunday, you're to talk about heaven. I'm interested in that place. Because I've held a clear title to a bit of property there for 55 years. I didn't buy it. It was given to me without money and without price. But the donor purchased it for me at a tremendous sacrifice. I'm not holding it for speculation since the title is non-transferable. It's not a vacant lot. For more than a half century, I've been sending material out of which the greatest architect and builder of the universe has been building a home for me which will never need to be repaired because it will suit me perfectly, individually. It will never grow old. Termites can't undermine its foundation because it rests on the rock of ages fire can't destroy it floods can't wash it away no locks or bolts will ever be placed upon its doors for no vicious person can ever enter that land where my dwelling place stands now almost completed and ready for me to enter it and abide in peace eternally without fear of being ejected there's a deep valley deep shadow between the place where I live and the place where my journey will shortly be. I can't reach my home in the city of God without passing through the dark valley of shadows, but I am not afraid because the best friend that I ever had went through the same valley alone a long, long time ago and drove away all the gloom. He has Stuck by me through thick and thin since we first met and became acquainted 55 years ago. And I hold his promise in printed form. Never to forsake. Never to leave me alone. He will be with me as I walk through the valley of shadows. And I won't lose my way. Because he's with me. I hope to hear your sermon on Sunday about heaven from my home, but I have no assurance that I'll be able to do so. You see, my ticket to heaven has no date marked for the journey, no return coupon, no permit for baggage. Yes, I'm ready to go and may not be here while you're talking next Sunday, but I'll meet you. Yes, the world can broadly be divided into two categories. Italian people and people who wish they were. No, that's not the two categories. Keep bringing up those two categories. The world can broadly be broken into two categories. Those who have made their reservations for heaven and those who need to make their reservations for heaven. I don't know if you've ever had to try to fly lately, but they want you to book 21 days out. If you book 14 days out, it might not be too bad. Even if you book 7 days out, you might be able to get a good deal. But when are you most likely to to pay the highest price? It's when you show up the day you need to fly. Guess what? Heaven isn't like that. If you book your reservations 55 years in advance, or 30 years in advance, or 20 years in advance, or 5 years in advance, or a week in advance, or the day in advance, the most important thing is that you've made those reservations. Heaven is a real place. Heaven is a prepared place. Heaven is a permanent place. And heaven is an exclusive place. I wish I could stand here and tell you that everybody goes to heaven. But I can't because it wouldn't be true. Later in John chapter 14, Jesus will actually make that statement. I'm the way and the truth and the life and no one to the Father except by me there's only one place and one way to book the reservation and you need to make sure that in the time of sorrow in the time of pain in the time of profound and terrifying disappointment that there's something inside of your heart a way to believe and to trust and to rely that your future is secure. When we're done, I'm going to invite you to stand up and when we play this last song, I'm going to invite those who have never made a reservation to make that reservation. I'm going to tell you how to do that. It's so simple. You just simply determine in your heart that you're willing to turn from your sin and you're willing to embrace the invitation that's being extended to you by the Lord Jesus Christ believe Him trust Him rely on Him put your faith and your confidence in Him let's stand Heavenly Father I pray for these men and women now Lord I pray that by your Holy Spirit, Lord, you would reveal those who have made reservations and those who haven't. Lord, we know that the Bible makes it abundantly clear. That for those who have troubled hearts, they need a new peace. And they need a place of perfection. Perfection. And so, Heavenly Father, I pray that by your Holy Spirit that that peace will lead to that new place and the new promise. And the new promise is, I will be with you. I will prepare your heart. I will reconcile you to myself. And so, Heavenly Father, for that person who realizes that they can't make the journey alone, that they need to trust You and rely on You. Turn from their sin. Turn to the Savior. Place their faith and their hope in Jesus. Lord, I pray that they would open up their hearts, that, Lord, that they would receive the hope and the message and the invitation with joy that they can experience forgiveness now. One of the most remarkable secrets about eternal life is it doesn't begin the day that we die, but it begins the day that we die to ourself and that we receive Jesus fully and finally and gloriously. Lord, I pray that that day would be today for someone. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's